This is Soundstage founder Doug Schneider. You're listening to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, your semi-regular deep dive into news, facts, opinions, and anecdotes about everything that really matters in the world of high-performance audio. Hosts Brent Butterworth and Dennis Berger have more than five decades worth of audio product testing experience and a few hours of podcasting experience as well. Now, here's Brent and Dennis. Hi, everyone. I'm Dennis Berger, editor of Soundstage Access. And I'm Brent Butterworth, editor of Soundstage Solo. And we both write for the Soundstage Network, which is a collection of nine microsites that cover all sorts of topics in audio, from the very, very high end to connected devices to headphones and everything in between. And this is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast, where we talk about everything having to do with audio, at least everything that interests us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and everything that we think should interest you. Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. I think I'm going to start off with a little bit of a controversial topic this week because I want to talk about a new product out from Macintosh Labs called the LB200 Lightbox. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised by what this thing is and what it does, but we'll, we'll dig into that in a minute. What do you want to talk about, Brent? I want to talk about your article that you recently did on Soundstage Access about why is vintage audio so hot right now. And we're going to pull in a very special guest, Gordon Salk, who is the uh, founder of Innovative Audio, one of the world's largest vintage audio dealers. And then what are we going to do? Uh, I have seen you reviewing a lot of headphones or earphones recently mm-hmm. on Soundstage Solo uh, with a label that struck me as kind of curious. You've been referring to them as chi-fi, which is a which is a term I heard from you. Um, so I want to talk about these earphones and what chi-fi is and what it means and why you're paying so much attention to it. And why they're so cheap. Yeah. And good. Kind of. Yeah. Some of them. So. Oh, hey, man. Spoiler warning. Okay. Cheap and good. <laughs> Spoiler, cheap and good. But we can dig more into that. Yeah. Right? Because nobody believes you if you say something's cheap and good. That's right. So, but but there's a lot of good reasons why these are good. Yeah. So, first things first, though, I want to dig into this new product announcement from Macintosh. Um, now, for, for anyone who doesn't know, and I would be amazed if anyone doesn't know, Macintosh is a revered audio brand with um oh by the way we should say they were founded in 1949 (laughs) (laughs) i looked that up i know for sure um anyway Mm. macintosh is a revered brand that i think a lot of people sort of in my circles are familiar with due to their involvement with um woodstock they provided all of the amplification for woodstock they were very very popular with the grateful dead For the um, wall of sound, right? The wall of sound. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, yeah, you know, they, they, they are a distinctive looking brand. They are, they are very popular with audiophiles. A lot of reliance on um, a cool aesthetic that involves a, you know, a backlit blue VU meter. It's really neat. But yeah. they've re- recently introduced a new product that I saw on social media called the LB200 Lightbox. Oh, what's it do? Well, nothing. <laughs> uh, I I thought this was a joke at first. I I, I look at this thing, this post on on Facebook, and it's it's. Uh, I'll I'll just read the post real quick. So uh, the the post reads. 
here's the LB200 exclamation point. It hmm. may not sound like a typical Macintosh, but it is a great companion for any empty slots in your precious racks. Enhance the look of your system with this light box that has built-in storage compartment to place components and help organize your setup. Learn more about the LB200 at MacintoshLabs.com slash LB200. And you go to that site and it is an empty case. It's an empty gear case with a mm-hmm. big front panel that says Macintosh handcrafted in the usa since 1949 it's got low voltage triggers that will basically turn on that lighting when any of your other gear turns on and then it's got a compartment in the back which uh macintosh describes thusly place unsightly components Mm. brackets streaming boxes cable boxes etc inside and all of and all of those not branded macintosh (laughs) all of those not branded macintosh (laughs) put your 300 phono pre in there so people won't you have a 300 phono pre to declutter and beautify your system proudly displays illuminated macintosh logo and handcrafted in the usa since 1949 statement as a badge of honor a must for every macintosh owner wow i i think i i almost think that maybe this is satire that was my first instinct my first instinct was did i miss april fool's day my second instinct was they have to be mocking late stage capitalism (laughs) i just i don't know well i gotta say yeah. And did we mention this thing's fifteen hundred dollars? Oh, we did not. This thing is fifteen hundred dollars. Okay. Fifteen hundred dollars for a box that does nothing. Which, granted, I have to admire their honesty because there's a lot of high end products that do nothing. <laughs> but they don't say it does nothing. But right. Anyway, they, they, there's a lot of high end products that effectively do nothing, mm-hmm. but um, but you know, are claimed to do something. This doesn't claim to do anything, but. It's, I have to point out that the, the Macintosh logo, I mean, we've all seen, I think, Macintosh products, and they have, you know, kind of a, that cool, you know, green backlit logo. That's their, part of their whole branding. And it's cool. It's really kind of old school. It looks like 1960s. It's kind of cool. But this has the Macintosh logo. It is humongous. It's probably like, uh, I don't know, uh, eight or nine or ten inches long. And it's really kind of garish to me. And so it looks... Wasn't this thing derived from a some kind of a dealer display? Yeah, I so I I was curious why they were calling this thing the LB two hundred. I was like LB two. That sounds like a, a sequel. It turns out this is a sequel. This is a follow up to a product that Macintosh released in twenty eighteen called the LB one hundred Lightbox. The biggest distinction between the LB one hundred and the LB two hundred is you couldn't remove the rear panel on the LB one hundred. It was just a sealed. It looked like a piece of equipment with, you know, a Barbie butt, I guess you would say. Like, you couldn't, there were no connections. It was just a sealed box with mm-hmm. ventilation for whatever reason and a, an illuminated front panel. But yeah, in digging further, it turns out that these were years ago made for uh, Macintosh dealers as a display. You know, basically, you'd sort of put this just, just to sort of say, hey, we sell Macintosh gear and people started yeah. begging to buy them. And I guess Macintosh originally or eventually relented and said, okay, fine, you can buy it for $1,500. And then they've since updated it with the removable rear panels. So you can shove unsightly gear in the back of it if you want it. If you want your Roku to look like a Macintosh amp for whatever reason, I don't know. Yeah. Now, I, I got to point out a couple things here. Mm-hmm. First of all, I, I assume this thing is made in Macintosh's plant in Binghamton, New York, 
which is not cheap to produce stuff in. And, you know, because in, in the kind of quantities that they would need, they would not want to farm this thing out, which costs a lot of money to farm stuff out. You have to have a minimum order quantity of, I don't know, a thousand with most things. And, you know, that's probably not practical. And since they're already building chassis, why not just make one that looks like this? So, you know, they have real American workers banging these things out. And I'm sure they're very sturdily built like all Macintosh components are. So it's not like somebody's charging you $1,500 for an empty chassis you could buy for $100 off of Markitech. Yeah, it does say on the back of it, handcrafted in USA with US and imported parts. Yeah, so so there is so they do have, and we tend to overlook that a lot in the high high end audio, that the the cost of the chassis on amplifiers is in many cases you know, more than the cost of the components inside. So there's that, and second of all, I I think this is basically a good idea that other manufacturers should copy. I would hope they do a you know, put some thought into it and really kind of come up with something nice. But yeah. we, so many of us have now little power supplies for things. We have little boxes that connect this thing to that thing. We have all sorts of little tiny uh, sort of black box components that, you know, I tend to shove them behind my equipment rack or my equipment rack is about Oh, the bottom shelf is about two, two or three inches off the ground. And so I shove a lot of stuff under there. And we have to do a lot of things to hide all of that uh, ancillary gear that that all hi-fi systems have nowadays. So I think, in a sense, this is a really cool idea. And for Parasound to do this would be also cool. And for lots of other high-end audio manufacturers, this is a pretty good idea. It's just that Man, if they had just brought that Macintosh logo down to like some reasonable size, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to, this is supposed to sit in the window of a dealership and basically be a sign that says we have Macintosh. And I guess there's probably some Macintosh consumers out there that want to sign in their system that says I have Macintosh. Man, if the Macintosh components weren't enough of that already. Yeah. I got to tell you, those people are not on Instagram and Facebook because Macintosh is getting savaged for this. I mean, just utterly savaged. The comments on on Facebook alone are just, I mean, people are just, the pitchforks are out. People are outraged. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> um, there's one comment in particular that I'm pulling up. $1,500 for a box with light promoting their brands. Man, every sale made of this will make them let's just say tinkle their pants with laughter. I mean, people are angry. <laughs> there was, I, I, we would have to bleep like every other comment on the Facebook thread. And the Instagram thread is even worse. People are outraged. So, well, you know, that's, that's what happens. You know, they're, they get outraged about us, you know, they get outraged about everything. So, I don't think that's such a big deal. I think there's a lot of people out there that are also, uh, especially on social media platforms that are outraged about high-end audio in general. And but this isn't even a high-end audio. <laughs> well, it, but, it, but, it's, but, but, you know, it, it's not audio, but uh, it's, 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 
high-end audio is not just about sound quality it's also about mm-hmm. visual appeal it's also about brand it's about tribalism frankly it's yes. about a lot of sort of social things that have nothing to do with sound quality it's also about sound quality you hope usually mm-hmm. sometimes yeah. not but so I think a lot of people are just outraged about this when they can go buy perfectly fine, as we've discussed many times, you can go put together a very, very good system now for a thousand bucks or something, or you can go buy Sono stuff that sounds pretty good or what have you, and it gets the job done. And so this is really no different from, you know, like a Rolls Royce. What are you really getting you're getting a, a car a now. A car that drives? I mean, you could true. actually go pick up groceries in it? <laughs> well, I know, <laughs> you know but it doesn't functions. work. The thing is, a Rolls Royce, especially nowadays, a Rolls Royce doesn't look all that different from anything else on the road. Back when they had the funky grills and all that stuff, it, it's like, ooh, Rolls Royce. But now they don't look all that different. And they, I'm sure they perform well, and I'm sure they have nice wood inside. I don't think I've ever been in one. But what are you really getting? You're getting the Rolls Royce branding more than anything else. You're getting, it's like, oh, I own a Rolls Royce. And every Macintosh owner, although Macintosh has a very good reputation for quality, mm-hmm. every Macintosh owner takes pride in the fact that they own Macintosh. So I think it's okay. If they had just shrunk the logo, we probably wouldn't have been, ta- I, I would have said, no, let's don't talk about this. But the fact that they didn't shrink the logo, and also they should have made, they should have had a door. All right, every manufacturer, every manufacturer who decides to do this, put a, you know, make the front panel fold down so that people can get into all their little stuff and push the buttons and switches on it and make the back panel, you know, re, you know have a, a, a door on it or something to where you can get in there and access all the connections and make it kind of functional. But, well, they have the latter. They have the latter. The yeah, original model didn't, but the new one does. Yeah, right. So, so really make it something that's a functional cosmetic component to kind of dress up your system. That's a perfectly nice thing to do, and don't put mm-hmm. a, a lot of effort into it, and don't charge a ton of money. You know, charge, charge. You know, whatever your normal markup is on it, just charge that. I found a comment that I wholly agree with. Uh, guy says, now slap a couple of large VU meters on the front and you might have something. I'm with him. Sure. I, I need more VU meters in my system. Sure. And you know, it's not like it's hard for them to execute that at this point. They got, I'm sure they have boxes and boxes and boxes of those things. Hell, they make clocks that look like VU meters. I kind of want one. I'm ashamed to admit. Okay, I think that's enough discussion about this empty box for right now. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on. So in our next segment, we are going to discuss vintage audio with vintage audio expert Gordon Salk. I'm going to learn right some back. stuff. Yeah.
And we're back. I'm Brent Butterworth. And I'm Dennis Berger. And this is the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. And Dennis, we in this segment are going to discuss an article that you wrote, which is called Why Is Vintage Audio So Hot Right Now? And this is on soundstageaccess.com. You can go check it out right now if you like, or wait till the end of the podcast. And <laughs> right now, though, we have a very special guest who can actually, unlike you and I, talk with some authority about vintage audio. His name is Gordon Salk. He is the founder of Innovative Audio, and that is one of the largest vintage audio dealers in the world. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Very, very glad to be here. We're very glad to have you, Gordon. I have to admit, uh, I wished I had had time to interview you for this story. Um, I did not for various reasons that I want to get into here. So when I was writing this piece, I kind of had to go off in my own direction because I, I really don't, as, as Brent said, I don't have any authority on vintage audio. So I had to sort of wrap my brain around why I think there seems to be some noteworthy increased interest as of late in, in vintage audio, which which goes beyond the sort of trend that we've seen over the past few decades. So, um, yeah, I, I wish I could have interviewed you, but I uh, didn't have time. So now is my chance to uh, make up for that and, and correct the record for a bit. Did you have a chance to read the article? I didn't. Uh, yes, I did. I just... So, so what did I get wrong? Uh, really nothing. Um, <laughs> for the most part, it was, uh, you kind of hide more, more highlighted than you, mm -hmm. you did anything else. You really didn't, uh, go, uh, in depth, but um, with regards to that, uh, we've noticed, especially in the last 15 years or so, that um, the whole basic aspect of vintage audio itself has has maintained a very high level. Um, we're finding that uh, it's a question of most people say it's the sound, but realistically, it's the it's the old aesthetics. It's like getting an old Mustang or an old Corvette. Mm -hmm. um, it's just you know, people just find that it's much better. But yes, if you have questions, by all means, please fire them at me. You know, the thing is, though, if you look at um, the online domain, Reddit, I'm a big Redditor, and look at a subreddit like r slash vintage audio, look at the subscriptions to that subreddit, and you can see a big uptick starting in about 2020. There was steady, predictable growth from the founding of that subreddit in 2012 all the way through 2020. And then it seems like the pandemic hit and bam, that subreddit just exploded um, in a way that you didn't necessarily see with other audio related subreddits. So you're, you're a vintage audio retailer. Have you seen a similar explosion of interest in since the, since the pandemic hit or, or is that maybe just an online phenomenon? No, it's uh, it's both, um, mm -hmm. both online and uh, through the store itself, through, um, through our actual sales. One customer actually pointed it out to me very clearly. They said that uh, when you're, when you walk into stores and I'm not going to name any right now, but when you walk into big box stores and you look at the different manufacturers, whether they be Denon, Marantz, Pioneer, Onkyo, what have you, you really have to look hard because they're they're pretty much cookie cutter. They're, they're all the same. Hmm. Whereas if you look at the older type of equipment, a cursory glance, and you can tell immediately which, what brand name it is because they're so distinctive. Mm-hmm. And so how'd you make the transition from, you were, you were like a, a home theater uh, dealer more or less, right? And then you transitioned into vintage, vintage audio? 
Correct. So what happened was, is that in the early, well, through even before that, in the early 2000s, as when Innovative Audio actually formed, um, but way before that, um, I went to garage sales, flea markets, uh, to, you know, finding all this stuff because I had an absolute passion for it. I just, it was, it's always been one of those things that, uh, you know, bringing home a whole carload of, of uh, receivers and whatnot, and you paid like 50 bucks was was outstanding. It was amazing. Um, but uh, we were doing, in essence, home theater uh, throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. As I said, in 2000, Innovative Audio was actually born. We uh, got the store going because we were doing it for five years. We were broadcasting for the Vancouver Giants. And uh, in 2005... We opened the store up and uh, we were doing whole house audio, uh, video integration systems. We were doing some repairs. Um, but the odd thing was with regards to our sales and whatnot for new equipment, we did something completely different, which is we took in trades, which was, again, nobody else was doing it. And um, we were finding the type of gear coming in was fantastic it was easy to repair it was it it's it was just phenomenal equipment and um within a couple of years in 2007 we made the decision of getting rid of the entire home theater gambit altogether and switching primarily just to two-channel audio um, once we did that uh, we've never looked back it's uh, it was it was probably one of the best decisions we ever could have made so you talked about how when you were doing the home theater business, you would accept trade-ins, but now that you've moved away from that and, and you're primarily sell, selling vintage gear, like how do you get the gear? Does someone call you and say, Hey, I've got a Sansui 9090. How much will you pay me for it? Or well, like, what's, do you, do you crawl eBay? Do you look on audio gun? Like, how do you get your hands on this stuff? So that that's, that's a fair question. So unfortunately, eBay seems to be the high watermark with a lot of, with a lot of retailers and what have you. And we do not. Uh, go to eBay. Um, what happens is, is that we take a look at other uh, devices that we had. First off, we never give prices over the phone because we don't know. Um, somebody's idea of mint condition means it only has seven cigarette burns in the case instead of three. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we are very cautious uh, when it comes to giving any sort of value over the phone. We want to make sure it's in our shop uh, on our table or bench. We want to test it. We want to go through it. Once we know exactly what we're dealing with, then at that time, we will give the absolute best value based upon prior sales of what we had before. Now, the biggest thing being is, um, again, we're one of the very few uh, companies that actually put our products on a website. So we take pictures, what have you, and we, we put it up. So if somebody comes in, and we tell them, hey, you've got a 9090 dB. It's in great shape. It's going to be this. We're going to put it on our floor approximately, let's say, $1,200. And the thing is, after we go through it, after we fix it, because everything we put on our floor comes with a full warranty. And the customer goes online days, weeks, whatever later, and they see that exact unit going for $1,299. They know that we're not fleecing them. We're not, they're not sitting there looking at it and all of a sudden it's $3,000. Gordon, what's, uh, what are the really hot kinds of components in vintage audio right now that are, that people are buying? Uh, turntables are still the number one. Um, amplifiers seem to have taken a real huge drop uh, in the last long while. Um, the forerunners, like the big boys, like Bryston's, um, 
Macintosh, uh, Mark Levinson's, what have you. For whatever reason, they've uh, they've really dropped in in popularity. Huh. Turntables, receivers, um, oddly enough, really good high end CD players, if you can find them, are still in demand. And uh, the really weird thing, which we don't, uh, anytime we get them in, they fly off the shelf. Are mini discs? So <laughs> any, what? You, what? Uh, mini huh? discs, mini disc players, <laughs> mini disc recorders. Um, there it's, it's for whatever, I have no idea why. Um, but they seem to be an exceedingly popular item. Wow. wow. Can you even get mini discs anymore? You know, like blank ones to record on? Uh, purportedly you can, uh, from what I understand, I think Amazon, uh, you can get some on Amazon. I don't know. I don't want to be, I, I have to verify that. Uh, there are a number of media companies that still have, uh, mini discs in back stock. So it is still a fairly popular wow. medium. Wow. One other thing that I've noticed, and, and you can tell me if this tracks with your experience or not, in the online domain, and this is on Reddit, this is on YouTube, what have you, I'm surprisingly seeing a lot of younger people than I would expect. I can understand for a guy like me, you know, grew up in the seventies and eighties going, you know, man, I always wanted that Kenwood K 5002, like, and now I can get one, you know what I mean? Um, but like I'm seeing 20 something year old kids getting into vintage audio. Does that track with your experience? And do you have any insight as to maybe why? Uh, insight, I can only guess, uh, because, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't really know. I think that the allure is in some cases, they seem that this is what their parents had. And, um, especially when they're going into smaller domiciles or sorry, they're going into smaller buildings and such like that. Uh, when they're moving out, they don't have uh, a lot of room for a lot of different things, but they they want to have that nostalgia feel. They want to have that that sort of um, that, that that atmosphere. And um, by having a piece of gear, I've I've actually sold uh, a number of pieces to to younger people. They didn't even want to plug it in. They just want to have it sitting there so it looks wow. really good. Interesting. So it's a it's kind of an odd thing. Um, there are. Uh, you know, on the backside of that, there are a number of people that we have spoken with that are, you know, sub 30 and, um, they are exceedingly knowledgeable, uh, when it comes to the, to the equipment itself, they've taken the time to do the background, the research and what have you. And it's, it's really interesting talking to them because they give an insight that, um, you knew was there, you know, 20, 30 years ago, sometimes even 40, but now you're hearing it coming back again through, uh, the eyes and ears and, and, and what have you from these people that for the most part could be your kids. <laughs> so Gord, what are the, what are, are there like pros and cons of buying vintage versus new gear? Um, one of the biggest things that we found Brent was, uh, first off, you can repair old gear and, uh, without having too much difficulty, um, parts and pieces are pretty much off the shelf for the most part. Uh, whereas new equipment, and we all heard about the, the Onkyo fiasco, um, simply just has too many meltdowns. It has, it's, it's not reliable. When you go buy a home theater receiver now, and, and, and again, in your experience, you've probably already seen this, um, you can go spend two, three, four thousand $4,000 on it. And it only has, you know, between a two and four year lifespan. 
before it's either one broken or two completely outdated. So, you know, with home theater equipment, uh, as you know, um, I have a 1978 receiver still going strong. I've never had an issue with it. Um, wow. It's, uh, it's my mainstay. It's, uh, I haven't swapped it out, haven't done anything else. And, uh, it, every day I plug it in or every day I turn it on, it just works. And what is the receiver? What's the, can you give us the model name and the model number and the brand? <laughs> uh, well, actually it's a, it's a pioneer SX 1980. Oh, um, I know that one. Yeah. Uh, you used that one actually in your, uh, your shootout. Uh, oh, that's right. Before. That's right. We uh, did a So on Gordon's site on, on, uh, uh, vintageaudio.ca, uh, you can, I actually, I've actually gone up to his store and done some shootouts where we tested some vintage turntables versus some new ones and vintage amplifiers versus new ones. And this pioneer receiver that he's got just really walked all over a lot of newer receivers. Now, if you pop the top on the thing, it looks like a Bryston on the inside. It's got like this big giant toroidal transformer in there and lots of output devices. It's really, really, really well built. And it was a super high end receiver for its day, but I mean, I put it up against anything anybody's making nowadays. No, it's uh, when you figure we, we measured it. That it, it, actually, sorry, Pioneer measured it at two hundred and seventy watts uh, at what was it point zero five percent THD. Yeah. Um, you put it on your, I believe it was the Precision Audio device. Yeah, Audio Precision. Yeah. And um, it uh, walked up about four hundred and seventy one at I think it was one percent or just under one percent. Yeah. Wow. It was just something crazy. Yeah, it was, you know, that raises an underrated. interesting question. Interesting question for me. Is there, Gordon, in your experience, is there sort of a, a time span in which you think audio got good? Like, it, would there be a general date would, would you would say to someone, you know, don't maybe don't buy a stereo receiver before whatever year? Um, and do you think it do you think it peaked in a certain year? Uh, open-ended question because there's a number of variables. One of the ones being is that with, especially with customers and clients, you have to take into account, um, what they're willing to spend. If, uh, if money is no object, 1975 to 1980 was the golden years. Um, why? What happened was, is that in, I believe it was 74, 75, uh, Pioneer introduced a receiver called the SX 1010, which was the very first receiver to actually break the 100 watt, uh, Per channel mark, it was kind of sort of the uh, the Chuck Yeager uh, <laughs> device of its time. Um, that was the start of the so-called power wars uh, for the for the receivers, um, with the ones being like the Sansui uh, G thirty three thousand being three hundred plus watts per channel, uh, the Techniques being three hundred watts. Um, you know, they the Marantz uh, with the twenty five and twenty six hundreds. Um, these were you know, huge, uh, huge power receivers, but before 75, um, and again, it has to be very careful because, uh, they did change the power ratings. Um, so before 75, the 100 watt per channel, just, it was, uh, it was like pie as sky. It was the Mach one barrier. So, um, there are a lot of really good pieces, uh, pre 1975, um, the Sansui, I believe it is the 5,000 X or the 8,000, uh, or the stereo eight was 
phenomenal receiver. It was referred to as the engineer's receiver. Uh, now I may have that that wrong because I don't have that in front of me right now. But um, Sansui made a lot of really good lower end, like between seventy and seventy five. There was still a lot of really great receivers coming out, but nothing that uh, again seventy five is when everything changed. Very cool. Is there anything people might need to know about the connectivity of these older stereo receivers if they're going to well, get into this? That's the that's the really cool thing. Um, you can because they have auxiliary ports and what have you, you can pretty much plug everything and anything into it. The only thing they cannot accept is uh, digital. So if you happen to have an optical Toslink or Coaxial, you're going to need a, uh, a converter to put it into the auxiliary. But aside from that, yeah, there's you can pretty much put anything in, into these old receivers as long as it has the inputs for it. So, Gordon, I got one more question for you. What What's the dividing line between vintage and non-vintage? Because I have like a seven-year-old ue bluetooth speaker that i really like and they no longer make it and would that be considered vintage once home theater uh came into the fray in the early 90s that was pretty much the dividing line um because once you separate two channel to home theater systems uh, they consider anything be before home theater technically vintage audio so if it's a two channel vintage audio component before home theater that is considered true vintage audio. Hmm. And so there, so there's no such thing as a vintage Bluetooth speaker yet? Not as yet, but I'm quite sure the millennials will be flocking to that if there is. So we're going to wrap it up. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us. And I should say that if you want to check out what Gordon does, go to vintageaudio.ca. They are based in Vancouver, British Columbia, but you do business all over the world, right? We get uh, stuff shipped to us virtually from all over the world to repair because we have, without sounding, sorry, arrogant, egotistical, or blatant, we have pretty much the best service facility anywhere noted. Okay. Well, Gort, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a treat yeah. uh, having your your expertise and wisdom on a subject that Dennis and I really don't know anything about. I, I truly appreciated being here, guys. And I, I really wish that I could have gone into more detail with a lot of different things because it is a... A fascinating area and uh, one that is truly rewarding no matter which way you you know no matter how much money you put into it or not it's uh, it is really something that everybody should take a look into at least one one time or another cool yeah thank, thanks Gord well we're going to take a little break and when we're back Brent I want to talk to you about uh, this phenomenon that you're writing about chi-fi headphones so cool. we'll see My you guys on the other favorite side. Favorite topic, vintage chi-fi headphones. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a thing yet. Yes. So. <laughs> All right. We'll see you soon. back to the Soundstage Audiophile Podcast. I'm Dennis Berger. And I am Brent Butterworth. 
And in this segment, I want to talk about some recent earphone reviews you've been doing, Brent, mm -hmm. because there seems to be a trend happening over at Soundstage Solo. A you bit. have been reviewing a lot of earphones, in-ear monitors, whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. and a, a certain phrase keeps popping up again and again in these reviews. Yeah. The phrase is chi-fi. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not a big headphone guy. I'm especially not an earphone guy. I can't really do earphones that much. So I'm a little ignorant about this, but I wanted to pick your brain about it, about this phenomenon, about this trend, about these brands and sort of uh, try to understand like, why are you reviewing all of these products that you're grouping together under this heading of chi-fi? What is this thing? And why is it so popular right now? So okay. I guess we'll start with, uh, I guess we'll start with the term because I have to admit as a, as a white dude living in Montgomery, Alabama, I kind of feel a little bit racist just saying chi-fi to me, that sounds derogatory. I mean, how do you feel about it? Okay. So it means, you know, Chinese hi-fi. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the term was, was originally coined by white American dudes on some audio forum. Yeah. Okay. So it's existed for at least 10 years and it was originally applied to inexpensive amplifiers, mostly tube amps, because oh. a lot of Chinese companies came out with, like Dakin is one of them. There are several others came mm -hmm. out with tube amplifiers that were priced at, say, $500, whereas you would find them under American brands for $3,000 for a kind of a fairly similar product. Mm -hmm. And so obviously a lot of enthusiasts started going, well, 500 bucks, I'll buy one of these. And it got the name Chi-Fi because they were sold under these Chinese brands that were at the time unfamiliar. Mm -hmm. And however, in the last, you know, that stuff's still out there. You can go on Amazon and look for, you know, Google or Google tube oh. amplifiers, you'll find this stuff fast. I, I wrote an article about it last year. I just didn't know they were called chi-fi, I guess. So, yeah. yeah. So, but the term has come to refer a lot more to these earphones that mm -hmm. are now they're, they're very inexpensive. They tend to be uh, under a hundred dollars. There are some that are 200, 300, something like that, but there are a lot of them that are in, you know, the mid two digits like you know fifty dollars or even as low as like twenty dollars mm -hmm. and this is not if you were to go buy a twenty dollar set of earphones from say sony okay they would have a single dynamic driver and they'd be these cheap little plastic things but you go buy these chi-fi earphones from brands such as say 10 hi-fi or uh cca or kz and they will have two or three drivers in them. They'll have over-the-ear cable routing, which you mm -hmm. know serious earphone listeners prefer because it kind of gives you a. If first of all, the, the cables aren't hanging out of your ears or hanging over your ears, so it's strain relief. Second of all, that design allows the earphone to fit deeper into your ear and give you a better seal and a more a, and, a, and a better fit. Well, these so, CCAs look a lot like my Westones, man. I yeah, mean, it's they, like... well, they're modeled on on those kind of of earphones and in fact these companies have made a lot of the higher end product for big you know big brands that you have heard of because mm -hmm. you know it's 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 been no secret that most almost all headphones and earphones are have been made in china for probably the last 15 20 years and you know some brands accept it certainly like like odyssey and 
campfire audio and, and people like that still make all their products in the US, but the vast majority of mass market headphones are all made in, in Chinese factories. And so what has happened, though, is that some of these companies have come out under their own brand, and some of them have multiple brands that they sell under. Mm-hmm. And the brand names are usually a little wacky. Like one of these is called the uh, – it's the Nice HCK, and that's all one word, DB3 earphones. And I pronounce it Nice <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm pretty sure that's racist. <laughs> no, it's not racist. It's just like just HCK. What is HCK? There's no vowel in there. So yeah. that's kind of what you would say. So is yeah. it nice hack? Is it nice hook? Is it nice hook? Is it, is it nice HCK? I don't know. Maybe they oh. should have a thing on their website. But whatever. Right. So, But what you'll find in these things is a lot of them have, you know, with, with high-end earphones. Most of them have multiple drivers. So they'll have maybe five drivers in there, maybe three, sometimes as many as 10. And with most of these things, you'll have a dynamic driver for the bass, which is a good thing because those do a good job on bass. And you'll have balanced armatures for the higher frequencies. And you'll you'll use like two balanced armatures for the mid-range and two for the treble or whatever. And But these things are coming out at prices the the ccac 10 typically runs around 40 dollars, and there are five drivers per side yeah and and i've i tested them you can go to soundstatesolo.com and start poking around look under we have a some drop down menus where you can look for specific reviews on earphones and there's a bunch of these things in there and the most recent one was a 10 hi-fi t3 plus which is a little more expensive. I think they were about $70. And those have a single dynamic driver, but there are sort of high-end ways to do a single dynamic driver. You know, we've seen single dynamic driver earphones from, say, Techniques that are $1,200. And boy, they are fantastically good. And these are kind of scratching up against those, but they're at a tiny fraction of the price. And it's a really fine product. Well, I'm looking at your measurements. I mean, these things have obviously been voiced. I yeah, mean, just, you know, there's no denying they put a lot of care and attention into the voicing of these things. So. Yeah, and and they're not out of they're not out of bounds from <sighs> I have to say, if you if you rounded up a bunch of earphones from if you went to Target, let's say, and and Walmart and places like that and rounded up all the cheap $10 earphones, $20 earphones, $30 earphones from Sony and Skullcandy and Philips is actually a big brand. Uh, all those different sort of mainstream companies and you ran measurements on them, they would probably not be as close to, say, Harman Curve as a lot of these things are. I mean, none of these. I've, I, so I've done four of these earphones in the last six months. And None of them were wacky. You know, they were all, they all, they all, they're not perfect. All, they all have little flaws here and there, but they're all really good products. And these nice hook, whatever <laughs> DB3s are, I think they were $18 when I bought them. And truth wow. be told, the reason I got into this is I ran out of review samples. <laughs> I, I didn't, I wasn't able to get anything in time for, for review. So I bought a bunch of these things real cheap. Just, oh, just you're for telling on yourself. Yeah. But, you, wow. but it turned out to be a really worthy area of exploration because 
to me, this really revives. We've talked many times about how high-end audio has gotten so far out of reach for any kind of average person. You know, when you've got amplifiers selling for $10,000, $20,000, $100,000, you've got these giant speakers that are just way out there for most people and also are $50,000 or $100,000. And yeah, there's, there's still plenty of high-end product you can go buy for hundreds of dollars. But the focus so much when you go on to the shows now is on this super, super expensive product. And to, mm-hmm. to see these company these companies coming in for $50 or something and offering a really fine product that is that, I mean, and the fit on these things is for the most part really good. And to be able to spend 50 bucks and also these things are all efficient enough to where you can just plug them straight into your smartphone or into a smartphone dongle or whatever you have. And they sound great. And you can really start to explore high quality audio for, for 30, 40, 50 bucks. Well, and that's I'm an looking, incredible I'm, thing to me. I'm looking at your measurements of the KZX critical CRN mm-hmm. now. And I mean, just looking at the spectral decay, they obviously put a lot of thought into the casing for these things. Yeah. Like, like you can't, you can't distinguish these things from $500 product except by the brand and the packaging. Yeah. I mean, it's just like no significant resonances in this thing, which, I mean, that would have to be a really, I mean, you, you tell me, I'm just guessing that would have to be a really carefully designed casing, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm still, I'm not aware of any direct correlation between the uh, spectral decay measurements and sound quality. It's just that they kind of point out, they're one of the things in measurements that sign up, you, you look at it and you go, Maybe they didn't put so much work into that, mm-hmm. but th- these are just really well-made products that are, you know, so often we get like even high-end, really expensive earphones that are a thousand dollars that really don't fit very well. And mm-hmm. these things, all four of these that I reviewed fit me fine. Some of them better than others. Uh, the, the nice hook ones <laughs> and the 10 high five ones fit me, I would say perfectly. And I had to get different tips for them, but I almost always have to do that anyway. But, you know, the tips I get are 20 bucks for, I don't know, wherever, whatever number. Yeah. And, and I do that with, I would have to do that with five or 500 or $1,000 earphones probably too. So they don't come with a case, but, you know, you can go buy a case for 10 bucks on Amazon with no problem or less. And you, know, you can also choose your case. So I, there's, and they all have detachable cables. So you can put, you can hook them up to uh, a true wireless, you know, Bluetooth adapter if you want to mm-hmm. run them that way. Yeah. They're really versatile, and it's a just a, a they're really good products for crazy cheap. It's almost like if you could go buy a really good set of speakers, and I'm not just talking about a tolerable set of speakers, but a really good set of speakers for two hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. That to me is what these are like, and you know, there are two hundred dollars speakers I can tolerate basically mm-hmm. there's not any really good ones i guess but there's some passable ones these are good these are really good products like i would say these are these are this is high end sound for a really 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 low price and yeah people should just go buy a couple of them you know part of part of audio i mean we're always talking about like how do you get the best sound quality but part of being an audiophile is also exploring different things yeah and 
that can cost you a lot of money. You know, if you want to go explore uh, an R2R DAC, well, that might cost you 500 or a thousand bucks. Yeah. But with this, you can go explore a couple of these things. You can go buy, you could buy three of them for $120 or less and yeah. have something to play with and really enjoy it. And I, I, I swear to God, if you get that, you're, you're going to hear some things in your recordings that you haven't heard before. And because they're, they're really good high end earphones and they're just crazy cheap. Now, I, I don't know as far as th there isn't an issue here. And that's the, you know, under what conditions are these things being produced? And you always have to wonder about that with, mm -hmm. with some of this super, super cheap product is, how, you know, how can they sell it so cheap? And clearly they can't be paying people a lot of money. And, you know, you wonder about things like, you know, famously the Foxconn factory in, in, uh, yeah in uh, Guangdong that had, you know, nets around the Suicide edge of the building yeah. so that people wouldn't jump off the building and die. And so you kind of, you know, but, but, you know, I, I gotta say in, in, in almost everything we buy, there are these issues nowadays that you have to wonder about the food that we eat and the cars that we buy and, yeah. and the cell phones that we have and all this sort of stuff. So I did an interview with Dan Lofman of Emotiva last year where we mm -hmm. dug into a lot of that about, you know, it's like, what is the, what is the moral aspect of, of saving a few bucks when you're buying this gear? But, um, but I have a couple of other questions about this for okay. you, since you, since you explored it way more than I have first things first, you know, with in-ears, I can only really do balanced armatures yeah. for reasons that we won't dig into here, but you know, mm -hmm. and so it's really, really cool to me that there, you know, I've always sort of been limited in what I could, what I could try out in terms of earphones, because for the most part, historically speaking, balanced armature headphone earphones have been more expensive. So it's like, I find yeah. one that works. I keep it forever. This gives me more of an avenue to explore. But on the other hand, I'm an iPhone guy. I don't have a headphone jack anymore. I don't want the stupid dongle. Mm -hmm. Are there any of these that are true wireless? And no. are they anywhere near as affordable? No, but you can get a true wireless adapter for them. So it's like mm. a little thing. So instead of these cables have uh, what's called a two pin connector, it's just two pins. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the replacement cables are commonly available for them. You can get replacement cables with a microphone built in or whatever you want. And so they also make KZ, which is one of the, the big companies that, you know, KZ is the parent company of a lot of these Chi-Fi brands. Oh. And, and I should I should also add, the Chinese manufacturers embrace the term chi-fi. Like they're really proud that they're getting recognized as Chinese manufacturers that are making really good product under their own name, rather than just companies that are cranking out other products, you know, products that other companies designed. Okay. So and and with the Tin Hai Fi review, Tin Hai Fi actually <laughs> posted a thing on Facebook oh, and yeah. said, if you leave a comment you'll be eligible to win a set of free earphones so we got all kinds of comments because people kept like just leaving a comment on there saying oh yeah these are awesome and yeah and we we're sitting there wondering like why are we getting all this stuff and then we finally figured out it was coming off of this facebook page so 10 hi-fi completely embraces and i never had any contact with them because i just bought the things because they were so cheap so yeah. they seem to really to to take a great deal of pride in it and 
and, and they should because they're they're doing great stuff. This is designed by them, built in China. Uh, quite often, these are shipped directly from China when you buy mm-hmm. them. And uh, and I should point out that these are probably most readily available off of Amazon. But if you start poking around, you'll find I I want to say Alibaba sells some of them, and there are some other sites that sell them. And a lot of it is just drop shipped straight from China, and you get it. Uh, weirdly, you get them in like a few days from China, wow. which like, how do they even do this? Yeah. But, uh, You've so, reviewed uh, four of them recently, I think. Yeah. The KZs, the CCAs. Which is made the by KZ. Nice hook. Yeah. And, <laughs> and the 10 high five. Yeah. The four, which was your favorite? And like, what were the differences between them? The 10 high five was my favorite um, mm-hmm. because it had... To me, the most to me, and also in the measurements, I think the most neutral sound. And there are little things I didn't like about it, but there's little things I don't like about almost any earphones. And all, all of them were, you know, sort of reasonably sane voicings. You know, none of them sounded weird. I'll put it to you that way. They had varying degrees of treble emphasis, and I think that the ten high fives had probably the least of that and kind of the most neutral sounding trouble which is weird because they have a single dynamic driver but they had to do a lot of things rather than just just shove a bunch of balanced armatures in there and tweak those up they had to do all the tuning acoustically so i think they had to put more care into it kind of like when you're mastering vinyl right Hmm. you have to like like anybody you can kind of throw together a master for digital audio pretty quickly because you know it will be your file will be perfectly reproduced on the other side however on vinyl you know since vinyl has limits you know vinyl you can't really go above about 15 kilohertz once you start to get to the inner grooves and you have limits in terms of the bass excursion and things like that so mm-hmm. v- with vinyl records they have to ch- the vinyl cannot reproduce the original an original dig- digital signal in full fidelity. So nope. the mastering engineer has to go in there and put a lot of care into making it sound good. You can't crank out a vinyl master and have it work. And I, th- that my theory is that single dynamic driver earphones, it's the same thing. If you, yeah, you can slap a driver in there and it'll work. And you know, the skull candy earphones for 20 bucks or whatever sound decent, but to really get it good, you got to go in there and work at it. And yeah, I, that's my theory is they just put more work into the tuning and and the result is fantastic and the, I think these were seventy dollars and they they look fine and they uh, they're comfortable and I just I loved them and I've been using them and I I would like it if they came out with a, a true wireless version that didn't require that you use adapters mm-hmm. and because you know, I have yet to try any of these adapters. I, they get very mixed reviews. They're kind of like true wireless from five years ago where it was really dicey to get oh, the stuff to work. Yeah. So I really should buy a set. I think I'm going to do that. I'm going to buy a set and try them. And, okay. and, and maybe, maybe I'll do a review of it and just see if I can find, maybe I'll buy three of them and, and find if one of them works. And there's no reason they shouldn't. It's just, a matter of them you know putting the work in to make sure it does but i think that would be really cool because you know true wireless is the is the earphone market now oh yeah yeah well you've done four of these have you got any more coming up 
I have a lot of schedule conflicts that are preventing me from going to headphone shows. So it's hard for me to find out what the latest and greatest stuff is out there. But I intend to go to whatever the next headphone show is, wherever it is, and dig in a little bit more. And also there's other so-called chi-fi brands that I have not even encountered yet. I just did this because I was desperate for product. And And then I found that this is a really cool thing and, and I need to be digging into it. And I'm doing, you know, a comprehensive set of measurements, which extremely few people do with with headphones and earphones. A lot of people just measure the frequency response and leave it at that. But I'm doing a lot more than that, which you can see at soundstagesolo.com. I think let's do some credits. Um, this will be uh, edited by we don't know who, either me or Dennis. Probably and me, yeah. uh, I think it's my turn. I think it's well, yeah. But I'm kind of digging, doing it now. Now that I'm oh, kind of, okay. I'm trying to oh, come you got up the to fever. I'm kind of trying to come up to your standards, so I'm having to learn some stuff and, and figure out all the plugins that you started using. You I'm taught using me that. how to do it. I know, but you, you know, the the, the the master or the the student has become the master or whatever. <laughs> Strike me down. And the music is probably going to be mostly by me this time, with potentially some help from uh, my friend. Ron Seiger. And we should credit the Soundstage Network, which is our parent company and overlord and benefactor. And mm-hmm. you can dig into all of the nine different microsites on Soundstage by just going to soundstage.com. Oh, we should credit Gordon. Yeah, Gordon for, for popping in here and lending us his expertise on vintage audio. Yeah. What is his URL again? Vintageaudio.com. C-A. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's it. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks. Okay. Thanks for listening. Bye. There we go. That was easy. <laughs>